From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Thursday, July 12th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. The Syrian ambassador to Iraq defects and joins the opposition saying Bashar al-Assad must go. Also, Saudi Arabia relents and will send female athletes to the London Olympics. Human rights activists say it's a start. The first lesson that you can take from the fact that Saudi Arabia is fielding two women two weeks before the beginning of the Olympics is that international pressure works. And later, following the trail of a reported honor killing in India that turns out to be more complicated. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss the series premiere of Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Syria's government has suffered another top-level defection. The latest to leave is the country's ambassador to Iraq, Nawa Fares. Fares told Al Jazeera TV that the government of Bashar al-Assad in Syria has, quote, become an instrument to kill people and their aspiration to freedom. And Fares called on other Syrian diplomats to abandon Assad. That's what Bassam Imadi did a few months back. He left the country. He used to be Syria's ambassador to Sweden. Since his defection, he joined the opposition Syrian National Council. He's now in Rome. Imadi notes that this latest defection of an ambassador comes a week after a top general also abandoned the Assad regime. Championship now means that they would try to perhaps detach themselves from the regime at the time that they might be accepted as defectors. But maybe later on, when the regime crumbles more, uh, nobody will accept anybody who is defecting and pretending not to be part of the regime. And are there others you know of who intend to defect? Well, I know many who would like to defect, but whether they do it or not, this is another matter, because it's not easy really to uh, expose your family and your relatives to danger, and uh, perhaps the regime might do something terrible to their families or loved ones. Uh, Also, they might confiscate their uh, belongings, their money, everything. So uh, not everybody would risk that. You defected, I believe it was December of last year. Tell us what your life is like now. One has to try and and live normal life. Uh, It's not easy to do that, but it's also uh, much, much better than being under the scrutiny and and control of security forces in Syria, especially with the fact that I was working with the rebels for about eight, nine months before I left to Turkey, and I had to leave because my life became in danger after uh, some people revealed uh, my uh, reality and the reality of, of my work with the revolutionaries. Do you have to keep your head down now? Or are you in danger? I've been trying to, to stay away from people who might be close to the regime. Uh, you cannot be a prominent figure in the opposition and lead a normal life because you will have to expect every minute that somebody might target you. I mean, that's happening in theory. Have you encountered any dangerous situations? Of course, sometimes I feel that I've been watched or followed or something like that, but... Uh, Beyond that, I, I cannot go into details because it's not really uh, for me to say that. And I've been told that, uh, that, that there might 
there has been some danger around me. You've been warned. Um, you were the the first high-profile former ambassador to uh, to leave. Why did you at that point in December? Well, uh, because uh, at the beginning of the revolution, I was approached by many groups seeking advice, political advice, and then I thought that it would be a good idea to bring them all together. And I managed to do that, and we set up what was called at that time the Council of the Revolution of Damascus, and we were in the leadership. I worked with them for about nine months, and uh, but after that I started having people watching or following or asking about me, so I realized that it was high time to leave. If I stayed there, I would have been arrested by the security forces. If Bashar al-Assad does step down, will you go back to Syria? If, if the regime uh, falls down, definitely we will all like to go back to Syria and, and help uh, rebuilding the country because, unfortunately, the, the country now has been destroyed to a large degree and needs all of us to go back and, and work hard to rebuild it. I mean, your story is far from over, but I wonder if at this point you have any regrets about either how long you stayed in Syria or about leaving when you did. Well, uh, I'll tell you something. Every new plans and, and adjust your plans according to the new circumstances. When I was in Syria, I was very happy working with the revolutionaries, um, but, but I, because I couldn't stay anymore, I had to leave. So I, instead of working with the revolutionaries inside, I went out and I tried to put all my knowledge and abilities in the service of the opposition. So uh, I cannot say I have regrets because the circumstances uh, force you sometimes to do something, but uh, you try to make the best of it. Uh, being inside, you can do something. Being outside, you can do something else. So I, I, I'm not, uh, I really, I don't regret anything I've done with the revolution, no. That's Syria's former ambassador to Sweden, Bassam Ahmadi, who defected from Syria last December. He spoke to us from Rome. Saudi Arabia is on the verge of taking a small but significant step. The kingdom will send female athletes to the London Olympics later this month. That's according to the International Olympic Committee. It would be the first time that any Saudi woman ever took part in Olympic competition, and it took months of heavy international pressure to get Saudi Arabia to lift its ban on women in the Olympics. Minky Warden is director for global initiatives with Human Rights Watch. She monitors human rights issues and the Olympics. She says that two Saudi women are now planning to compete in London. The women who are representing the country will have births in judo and in track and field. And we don't know very much about them. They uh, live and train outside of Saudi Arabia, and that is because there's an effective ban on women taking part in sports or training inside the country. So wait a minute. So if they lived in Saudi Arabia, they would not be competing in the Olympics. And if they lived in Saudi Arabia, they wouldn't even be training in judo and cross country. The two women who are representing the country have what are known as universality slots, and these are positions that are created by the International Olympic Committee because the Olympics are not just about winning gold medals. They're also about representing your country. Remember, in 2008, Saudi Arabia sent an all-male team. In 2012, in London, for the first time, women will march behind the Saudi flag. So how much of a gain would you say this is? It's an important gain, and it's an important symbolic step, you know, the first step in a race, you could say. However, inside the country, as a matter of government policy, Saudi Arabia is the only country in the world that bars girls from taking part in sport in schools. Uh, There are 153 sports federations inside Saudi Arabia. Not one of them has a women's section. It is virtually impossible for women to compete at an international level in the country. 
So are you convinced that this step, a small step, as you say, um, is really going to ultimately make a difference? Because there are a lot of exceptions to the rules here. Well, it's it's an important precedent. It's going to be nearly impossible for the Saudi government to roll back. The Saudi Ministry of Education has written to Human Rights Watch when we put out our report on the topic that it was under consideration for girls to be allowed to participate in physical education in schools. Now, this is the classic Saudi promise of reform that rarely materializes. But now, with the Olympic decision, the international community and the International Olympic Committee has the ability to turn up the heat on Saudi authorities to make them finally follow through on all of these pledges that girls could participate in sports. If the International Olympic Committee fails to do that, every four years, there is going to be a crisis of whether or not Saudi Arabia will send an all-male team. You mean the male team could be in jeopardy if Saudi Arabia doesn't allow a female team? Of course. In 1999, Afghanistan was banned in good part for restricting sports for women. So this year could have and should have triggered a ban on Saudi Arabia taking part if they were trying to send a men-only team. I mean, I know you say this is a gain, but it sounds like the International Olympic Committee has been looking the other way or just ineffective. No, it's, it's, it's better late than never, but it has been a big problem for a long time that the international sporting community was tolerating this type of discrimination. If you're going to close off sports for women, no one can participate. If you don't play by the rules, then they can't play at all. Minky Warden monitors human rights issues and the Olympics at Human Rights Watch. Are you going to be looking specifically for these two uh, Saudi women when the games roll around in two weeks? We'll be cheering these women and hoping that one day millions of other women inside Saudi Arabia can also participate in sport. All right. Thank you, Minky Warden. Thanks for taking up this important topic. For more on Saudi Arabia, check out our new Voices of Arabia page at theworld.org. They're known as snakeheads. That's the term for human smugglers in China. This week, Taiwanese authorities said that they have dismantled one of the largest human smuggling groups operating among Asia, Australia, and North America. The authorities say the snakehead ring smuggled more than 100 Chinese migrants into Canada and Australia. All of them flew out of Taiwan's international airport using doctored Taiwanese passports. Sheldon Zhang is a professor and chair of the sociology department at San Diego State University. He studies human smuggling. Sheldon Zhang, in these days of such tight airport security, how is it possible to smuggle people? It is likely that they go through what they call the photo substitution. In other words, you get the passports and somehow figure out a way to lift the laminations and replace the photos with another person's photos. But these days, these photos are typically color printed onto that passport page. So another way this is to find passengers or passports that look alike. That must be and hard, the, though, if you're if you're trying to send you know five ten people out of a country at the same time. You get you get access to a certain restricted area, then you have to switch passports to board, and this is possible. Yes, once you go into what well, you have to have two groups of people doing this, and one group of people have to come into the international transfer areas, the secured areas uh, with another groups coming in who are heading towards Canada. Then they swap out the passports. But on the other hand, you know, there's always a suspicion that there might be some insiders working at the security checkpoints 
in the airports. In the 80s and 90s, in mainland China, they had uh, problems. And then, then they went, then they uh, instituted a bunch of uh, frequent rotations to rotate security guards or checkpoint inspectors in and out of the places that make it difficult to predict when a certain inspectors will be working at a shift. You know, for some groups to do this, as this news reported, in the 50 times successfully, it's almost very difficult to do so many times without any inside help. Why, in particular, would Taiwan be the departure point for these people being smuggled? Most likely it's convenience because Taiwan is the closest transit, international transit point to Fujian province. As reported in the news that uh, most of the uh, smugglies, uh, the, uh, the illegal immigrants, were from Fujian province, which that province has, a long, has had a long history of outward migration. From China. From China, especially back in the late 80s and early 90s, and that is the biggest, single biggest group of illegal immigrants coming to U.S. Which brings up a good point, by the way, and that is that these are not victims of human trafficking. These are people who are paying to be smuggled out of a country and end up, for instance, in Canada. How much do they pay? Typically around fifty to $70,000 for a trip to U.S. and Canada, probably a little bit less, but still, I would say anywhere uh, between fifty to seventy thousand. And meanwhile, those who do the smuggling, uh, how do they stay undercover? The snakeheads. Um, oftentimes, when people say they make, uh, you know, fifty thousand between fifty to seventy thousand per head, there's actually a lot of cost that goes into the initial recruitment. Then the document vendors and the, the transporters. So there are a lot of people involved. There are very, very few cases where you have one big boss sitting on top and collecting money from all the players. Usually, different stages are managed by different individuals. So this is really a group of entrepreneurs and getting together and have the resources and the connections to pull through one of those operations. Professor, thank you. Very nice to talk to you. Uh, Sheldon Zhang researches human smuggling. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Sociology at San Diego State University. Thanks again. Thank you. The problem with palm oil and the problem with trying to live without it, coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. In the Indian city of Bangalore, newspapers are full of lurid tales. They reflect the stress that's accompanied the city's explosive growth and modernization. And some of the stories are funny, such as the one about a developer who built too close to an ancient shrine and wound up with a haunted apartment building. Other stories are more serious. Reporter Michael May became drawn to one of those stories. The story was on the front page of several local papers. A 22-year-old law student in Bangalore had died mysteriously while visiting her family in their village. Her name was Brahmarambika. Details on how she died were murky, but she was quickly buried without the police being called. Authorities were investigating her death as a possible honor killing. In other words, the family may have executed her for some transgression, for instance, falling in love with someone from the wrong caste. The story fascinated me for the same reason it fascinated everybody else. It gave a face to the tensions underlying India's urban growth. Rural Indians are flocking to the city to escape their humble roots. Not everyone makes it. I called a local crime reporter named Rajiv to ask him about the case. 
He told me what made the death suspicious. The first suspicious thing was the parents' failure to register a police complaint. The second thing is our friends went to the village and spoke to the family saying that why did Brahmaramika commit suicide? Each family member had different versions. When the students returned home, one of them sent a letter to the state high court saying they suspected an honor killing. The high court opened an investigation. Rajiv and I headed to Seshadripuram Law College to meet with some of Brahmarambika's fellow students. He seemed flustered by the attention. None of them would admit to writing the high court. The students said they weren't sure if Brahmarambika's death was a murder or a suicide. Neither made any sense to them. The head of the school, a woman named Asha, greeted us downstairs. She seemed more like a Hindu mother superior than the dean of a law school. Smart maternal, and no-nonsense. She began by telling me about Brahmarambika. She's very simple, straight, and a very obedient, decent girl. I remember her cheerful face. She was smiling only. Brahmarambika was the first woman from her village to go to graduate school. So I asked if a simple rural girl like her would have trouble adjusting to law school in a city like Bangalore. Asha didn't think so. We are not very hi-fi. By hi-fi, she meant modern. She said many of the students are from traditional rural backgrounds. We believe in Hindu traditional culture. We have a dress code covering the full body. Those uh, who would like to enjoy life and uh, go around in the city, automatically they go away, they drop out. But Asha said that Brahmarambika was suffering from a kind of culture shock. She only spoke the language Kannada, and her classes were all in English. She would have found it difficult to interact with the teachers in English. She has uh, failed in many subjects also, maybe because of the reason of English uh, knowledge. At the end of the semester, Brahmarambika skipped an assigned presentation in front of the school. But Asha said she didn't seem depressed and had paid the fees for her exam in June. A week or so later, Asha read about her death in the paper. We left with more questions than answers, so we took a drive out to Brahmarambika's village to speak to the family. As we drove, I pondered Brahmarambika's strange death. Could it have been a suicide? It's possible. Just last month, a study in the medical journal The Lancet reported that suicide is the leading cause of death for young Indians especially among highly educated young people from rural areas in the more developed South. Brahmarambika fit the profile exactly. After a couple hours, we turned onto a deeply rutted dirt road and started moving towards her village. We spotted a young man in a t-shirt and sporting a thin mustache. His name was Gangadhar. He said he went to school at Brahmarambika for 10 years. He told us Brahmarambika would tend the cows when she came home. She seemed happy. When he heard she died, he rushed to her house. He saw her lifeless body laid out on the floor and a noose hanging from the ceiling. He didn't understand why the papers reported her death as an honor killing. Sure, he said, parents in the village get upset when someone marries outside their caste, but they learn to accept it. The village itself was full of dirt paths, bicycles, cows, and small concrete block homes. When we arrived, a crowd of about 50 villagers gathered. We asked them about Brahmarambika's death. Everyone said it was a suicide. Eventually, we were waved into Brahmarambika's small home. 
Her mother, father, and sister sat quietly in the dark living room. A single candle burned on a shelf. Their faces were barely illuminated in the flickering light. In a steady, bitter tone, her father, Narasimhaya, began to tell us a story. He told us the day Brahmarambika died, he and his wife were on a pilgrimage to a Hindu temple 400 kilometers away. They got a call saying she had hung herself, and they rushed home. By the time they got back, she'd been dead for a day. According to Hindu custom, the funeral ritual should have begun immediately after death. So they rushed to bury her without bothering to call the police. Narasimhaya was a retired school teacher. He said he'd wanted both of his daughters to be educated, and that's why he'd sent Brahmarambika to Bangalore. And now, he said he's full of shame because she's killed herself for reasons he doesn't understand. As we walked to the door, Brahmarambika's mother, Parvatama, tore into the crime reporter Rajiv. She said, don't you media people have sisters or mothers? Leave us alone so we can grieve. Or go ahead and kill us first so we don't have to answer any more questions. Rajiv bowed his head, mumbled condolences, and we walked into the night air. We got into the car and started heading back to Bangalore. In the absence of any other evidence, it seemed Brahmarambika had probably killed herself. Instead of a sensational story of a brutal honor killing, we'd found something more ordinary and sad. It looked like Brahmarambika was another young Indian woman who found life's pressures too much to bear. If she had a dark secret, she took it with her. Rajiv was brooding on the drive back. I could tell he felt bad for bothering the grieving family. Today I felt very, really guilty when he said that you media people have tarnished my daughter's image. See, what to do? This is my job. I have to ask questions. And with that, he called the office and started dictating a story as he drove. He needed to get it done in time for the morning paper. We are tortured. We are tortured. For The World, I'm Michael May, Bangalore. Police, uh, full stop, huh? for our geo-quiz now, which is like a walk on the beach, or at least a walk to it. Our starting point today is the capital of Senegal, that's Dakar. The beach area we're looking for is on the outskirts of the city, and once you get close by, you'll probably spot surfers riding the Atlantic waves that roll in. These beaches have an international reputation. In fact, they were featured in the iconic 1960s film The Endless Summer. If you need directions to walk there from the center of Dakar, may help to Google it. Google has just rolled out a new mapping feature. Walking directions may come in handy in the 44 African countries where the online app is now available. We'll get directions to that beach we'd like you to name a little bit later in the program. And here's one last clue. This place is the westernmost point in all of Africa. This is The World on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, the little-known story of a small cadre of American activists who helped South Sudan win independence from the north. This is a South Sudanese story, but the truth is that no rebel movement gets to become autonomous and, and to have their own nation without some powerful outside backing. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, 
an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. South Sudan celebrated its first anniversary as an independent nation this week. It took decades of struggle. Among the actors who helped the South finally gain independence from Khartoum in the north was a small group of Americans. That's according to longtime journalist Rebecca Hamilton. She writes about this group in an article for Reuters. It is called How America Was Sold on South Sudan. Rebecca, this small cadre of American policy wonks is extremely interesting. I wonder if you can tell us who they are and how they got together to begin with. Sure. So they are this very unlikely grouping. You have an English lit professor, you have an Ethiopian refugee to America, you have one man who was in the US federal government for 32 years until he retired this year. So this unlikely grouping that were bonded by their interest in southern Sudan and who were all captivated by the late southern Sudanese rebel leader, John Garang. And interesting to look at the beginnings because one of them had actually gone to school, Iowa State University, with John Garang. Exactly. And his name is Brian De Silva, and he remembers his supervisor telling him before John Garang arrived, pay attention to this man. One day he will be the future leader of his country. So he became very captivated by the Southern cause. And this was back at the very beginning of the 80s. Two of the original members of the council, they called themselves, were working on Southern Sudan in 1981. So you're looking here at a 30-year time span between their initial involvement and Southern Sudanese independence last year. Right. So you say they call themselves the council. They also gave each other kind of nicknames, grandiose nicknames, we should say. (laughs) They did. Um, They called the man Ted Danye, who was originally a a refugee from Ethiopia, they called him the emperor. And they assigned a man called Eric Reeves, who was this English literature professor, the title of deputy emperor. Another one was the spear carrier. Another one was the council member in waiting because he always liked to challenge the emperor. But what comes across is that these men were working together very closely, putting in just innumerable hours over a period of decades in their struggle to support the Southern Sudanese cause. And the hours didn't just involve hours of lunch in the uh, back of this Italian bistro. The hours also involved hours on Capitol Hill with a lot of cajoling, a lot of movement back and forth and representing various interests. What was the impetus and what were the interests that these guys, and they're all guys, were representing? Yeah, and I should say the core group are all men, but they count as an informal member of their group, Susan Rice, the current U.S. ambassador to the U.N., who would sometimes drop in on these sort of convening lunches that they had at this little Italian bistro down in Washington. But their initial mission was simply to put what was happening in southern Sudan on the radar of people in Washington. And the background is that there was a very long civil war in Sudan. Some two million southern Sudanese were killed. But for much of the time, it was very difficult for anyone to get access into the area. And so you weren't getting stories of what was actually happening for civilians on the ground. And initially, what the group started doing in the 1980s was trying to get members of Congress into these war-torn areas so that they could hear direct testimony from the victims of the conflict. 
What was the interest of the council as it's known? What drove these movers and shakers to this particular place? They had come in through a variety of means. You know, for Brian De Silva, it was that he was a classmate of the Southern Sudanese rebel leader when he was at Iowa State University. For John Prendergast, he had been this sort of wayward college graduate that had been traveling the Horn of Africa looking for some meaning and cause in his life and had stumbled upon what was happening in Southern Sudan. For Roger Winter, who was then involved in the U.S. Committee for Refugees, it was hearing tales of Southern Sudanese who had arrived in the US. So they came to it through different means, but what they were united by was their belief in the righteousness of the cause of the Southerners. And even though they admit that in the war, some of the Southern fighters actually committed horrific atrocities, they nonetheless always felt that the South was in in the right against this battle with the government in the North, the Sudanese government. You write in your article, uh, nationhood has many midwives. South Sudan is primarily the creation of its own people. It was the South Sudanese leaders who fought for autonomy and more than two million Southern Sudanese who paid for that freedom with their lives. So the Sudanese came first. Where does the council, this group that you're writing about, fit in? They saw themselves as supporting the Southerners. And I'm glad you read out that paragraph because it was very important to me to be clear that this is a South Sudanese story. But the truth is that no rebel movement gets to become autonomous and to have their own nation without some powerful outside backing. You know, I wonder if you had the feeling as you were reporting this story and talking to this cadre, members of the so-called council, who, as we said, you know, give each other names like the emperor, etc. It has a very imperial tone to it. And it may be these nicknames tongue-in-cheek, but is there an air of presumption among the members of this group? Is there a notion that they are kind of somehow exerting or influencing American foreign policy with regard to Sudan in an outsized way? The nicknames are very captivating, but it is important to emphasize that they were very much tongue-in-cheek. And what is very clear from speaking to them is the depth of the contact that they had with the southern Sudanese rebel leaders. So I think it's sort of more accurate to think of them as almost the southerners' proxies in Washington. Um, But necessarily for good or bad, the influences that the members of this council brought to bear could represent United States interests, maybe not. Right, absolutely. I mean, I think that without the council, without their efforts, I don't think that U.S. foreign policy towards South Sudan would be what it is today. And as we say, depending on your viewpoint, that's a good or a bad thing. But I don't think there was anything natural about the U.S. government becoming an ally of this new country of South Sudan. Do they still meet in that Italian restaurant? (laughs) A couple of them go to that restaurant for lunch, but they've split their different ways. We have the emperor who has now moved to Juba to become an advisor to the new South Sudanese president, Salva Kiir. So I think they feel that the effort to get Southern Sudanese independence has been fulfilled, but now there's a new challenge, which is to make sure that it becomes a democratic nation that represents its own people. Rebecca Hamilton, thank you. Thank you. Rebecca Hamilton is a Reuters correspondent. You can find a link to her story, How America Was Sold on South Sudan, at theworld.org. You might turn to Google for a search of Sudan on a map or to map out your vacation. Or even 
to get help answering our geo quiz. Well, today, for example, we're looking for the westernmost point on the continent of Africa in Senegal, and we're going to walk there from the capital city of Dakar. Google is adding walking directions to its mapping feature in more than 44 African countries. Mariam Jam is an African blogger who writes about technology in Africa. She's also a big walker who thinks the new Google feature is fantastic. I think it's a very good idea that Google has launched this in 44 African countries. You know, I think uh, when you go to Africa, it's very difficult, you know, to get directions. You know, you always rely on cabs and especially in my own country, you know, you just talk to a cab and you tell them I'm going somewhere and they'll drop you there. So um, I think it's, it's actually fantastic that Google have bought this for people who got Blackberries and, and smartphones in Africa to be able to find direction from their mobile phones. It, it does put us on the map, which is excellent. Uh, yes, literally. So is this technology user friendly as far as, as you know from your own use? It is very, very user-friendly. As far as you, if you have got a mobile, a smartphone, it does, it does work very well. So all you need to do is just type the, you know, type the direction from A to B and you'll get there. And it gives you turns. I mean, it says go a quarter of a mile, turn left onto such and such, and, and it's all according to foot traffic and, and the time it would take you to walk, correct? Yeah, it gives you the, the, the directions, just like on the, on, when you are in your car, it gives you the, you know, the, the number one, the direction number one, number two, number three. It gives you all the, the directions, take turn left and right, uh, you know, right into somewhere, left into somewhere. And it is it just gave you those directions. I wonder, um, wonder how they got the data on this. They, they work with the cartographers. Google has got an amazing African online, Google Africa. They are working very, very hard in Africa, and they've got a, you know, a very good team uh, you know, across, across countries in Africa, and they, they get data from, from the online communities, the people on the ground, the mobile app developers, the cartographers in Africa. They've got country managers across many, many countries now, Senegal, Ghana, Kenya, uh, so they they do get their data are um, you know and they they're very careful on how to get the data because they don't want to you know they don't want people to bang on them. So that's a lot of walking for forty four countries um, to be mapped out uh, by foot. In terms of who's going to use this, uh, who the technology is aimed at, who do you think um, most likely will benefit? I think we have now the middle class of Africans who want to get access to information. They mostly been to Europe. They know how easy it is to get from, uh, you know, Westminster to, uh, you know, Westminster to, you know, take the Jubilee Line, for example, going somewhere in London. So you need to, you know, use you need to use mobile phone. So African people are now wanting to get uh, have access to to those information. So they mainly targeting everyone, but I think their main target will be the the smartphone users uh, who got, uh, you know, who can have access to to those those facilities. I understand that uh, that you're a walker yourself, Maryam. Um, have you tried this out on one of your daily walks yet? Uh, I tried to try it in Senegal and I didn't get uh, far uh, from uh, from my hotel in uh, in Dakar town center to the Almadis uh, and I didn't go far. So, but it, it's on better. Uh, we should say you mentioned Almadis there as a place where you walk. This is the westernmost point on the African continent. The Almadis is, uh, is, 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 a, is a lovely place in, uh, in, a, in, a, in Dakar, Senegal, where it's lovely beaches there where tourists go and people go for fresh air. So it's a lovely place. So if you get a Google map, you just need to type Medina from Medina to Les Almadis, uh, route, route des Almadis, and it will get you to Les Almadis. 
Sounds like a good walk. Uh, and again, Les Almadis or the Almadis uh, is the answer to our geo quiz, the westernmost point on the African continent in Senegal. A favorite walk of yours, Mariam Jam. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> There's something of a battle of the bands going on in Germany. Because of austerity measures, officials plan to merge two publicly funded orchestras in the southwestern part of the country. Question is, which town gets to host the merged orchestra, Baden-Baden or Freiburg? Neither wants to lose an orchestra, and people in both towns are singing out about it. The BBC's Steve Evans reports. It is not your usual protest against cuts. Some people may march, some people may scream, some people may jostle the police. But in sedate southwestern Germany, a woman gets up in a concert and hands out the score of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony which the audience then sings. The words have been altered to express concern that the local orchestra is under threat. To save money, Southwest Radio has decided that two orchestras will become one, with the one in Baden-Baden primed for the chop. Karina Neimeyer is one of the protest organisers. It was more spontaneous. We went to the concert and we gave texts to the audience. And after that, the whole audience was singing. It was a very emotional moment. Even very old people, they told us, yes. Culture costs money, but what you get for that will make your life richer. These orchestras can give you something. What the orchestra under threat gave us was one of the best-known recordings ever made. The Southwest Radio Symphony Orchestra recorded this for Stanley Kubrick's film 2001, A Space Odyssey. But good recordings then don't ease the financial pressure today, according to Norman Lebrecht, the cultural commentator. He says that the 169 orchestras in the divided Germany have become 132 today through a gradual, quiet process of closure and merger. But now the fight back started. This is the first time that they're trying to abolish or merge an orchestra where there is resistance and where the resistance is justified. And so people are taking to the streets and they're doing flash mobs and they're doing sing-ins in the concert hall. And so we're seeing real resistance to an administrative decision to remove an orchestra that's really important to local people. Soloists who share the stage in Baden-Württemberg have taken up the cudgels, or at least their bows. The viola player Tabea Zimmermann made a speech from the stage talking of her vehement opposition and the need to keep orchestras. It is a battle, then, between the baton and the bows of beauty and the axe of austerity. 
with the audience participating in the fight rather than watching from the soft seats. The winner will emerge from a committee later in the summer. That's the BBC's Steve Evans. Still to come on The World, wake up Madagascar. This is PRI. The World is brought to you with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Don't miss the series premiere of Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. If you eat cookies or cupcakes or if you use cosmetics, chances are pretty good that you are a consumer of palm oil. The stuff is everywhere these days, and it's also controversial. Oil palm plantations have been blamed for widespread deforestation in Southeast Asia. Some palm oil growers have begun to clean up their act, but many people think the industry is not changing fast enough. Among them, a young Frenchman who set out to go an entire year without consuming palm oil turned out to be a tricky proposition because, as the world's Adeline Sear explains, palm oil shows up in lots of products. Take Nutella, for example, that creamy chocolate and hazelnut spread that many kids eat for breakfast, especially when their mother's French. Hey, what do you boys want for breakfast? Nutella! Okay, I admit it. My sons, Felix and Victor, often ask for Nutella on toast, pancakes, and rice cakes. What's the best part of the Nutella? I'd go with the chocolate part. It's very chocolatey. That's Felix. What about you, Victor? What do you like about Nutella? I like Nutella because it's smoother than chocolate. It's really creamy. That creaminess comes from palm oil. Not that I ever thought Nutella was a healthy snack, and I do feel a bit guilty letting my children have it so often. But now that I have seen a photo of deconstructed Nutella, I may stop serving it altogether. The picture was taken by Adrien Gontier, a PhD student in geochemistry in Strasbourg, France. He figured out the proportions for the ingredients in Nutella and stacked them in easy-to-see layers in a jar. The visual is pretty striking. Thin layers of powdered milk, powdered hazelnuts and cocoa, and a thick layer of sugar, roughly 40% of the spread. There's another thick layer of oil. Nutella's roughly 20% palm oil. Now, palm oil is high in saturated fat, but Gontier says he didn't give up palm oil for a year out of concern for his health. It was really because of my concern for the environment, he says. In fact, I also stopped buying soaps, shampoos, toothpaste, and cleaning products that contain palm oil. Gontier says he's concerned about deforestation in Southeast Asia, where most of the world's palm oil is produced, and its impact on biodiversity and water resources there. So Gontier went palm oil-free last July. And it proved a bit trickier than he anticipated because many major brands use it. Pringles, uh, Kellogg's, Ferrero. So as he says, the Sprinkles, Kellogg's and Ferrero, which makes Nutella, Oreo cookies, Nestle and Haagen-Dazs. Gontier notes that palm oil isn't in every product marketed by these brands. But he says many French chocolates, packaged breads, cookies, store-bought pie doughs, sauces and baby formulas contain it. Gontier even found it in some packaged raisins. 
He studied labels carefully, but he says it wasn't always possible to tell whether palm oil was an ingredient. So Gontier's first step was to give up processed foods and cook fresh ingredients at home. And when it came to eating in restaurants, I selected my meals carefully, he says. So, for example, I would order a salad rather than dishes with sauce or quiches and other pies. In spite of all his efforts, Gontier says halfway through the year, he realized his car was also a palm oil consumer. Diesel fuel, which is used widely in European cars, can contain up to 10% biofuel, and 1% generally comes from palm oil. Gontier has now completed his palm oil-free year, but he still avoids it as much as he can. He says he plans to write a book about his year, but only after he finishes his doctoral thesis. For now, Gontier has put together a little guidebook in French on how to steer clear of palm oil products. But he also came up with a recipe for homemade Nutella. I used hazelnuts, cocoa, he says, and agave syrup as a substitute for palm oil. Gontier says the consistency is just right. Not too soupy, not too solid, just creamy. Hmm, maybe something to try at home with the kids. For the world, this is Adeline Sia. Yes, do indeed try this at home. We've got a recipe for homemade chocolate hazelnut spread at theworld.org. Now, palm oil is hardly the only cause of deforestation. In Madagascar, for instance, the island nation off the east coast of Africa produces no palm oil to speak of, but it has one of the worst deforestation problems in the world. Well, starting tomorrow, some visitors from Madagascar will be telling Americans more about this in song. The world's Marco Werman explains. Two years ago, New York-based Malagasy singer Razia Said put out her debut CD. It contains songs like this one, Slash and Burn. It's my bones when I heard you say that the hills are burned away. Razia told me then that this song was inspired by a recent trip she had taken back home. We took a bus. So we went around the south of Madagascar, and it's during the, the whole trip that I saw so much burning. So much smoke, and we stopped on the road, and that's really when it hit me. I said, my God, this country is burning down, basically. Razia has maintained her focus on the environmental troubles facing Madagascar, and tomorrow she presents the latest fruits of her musical activism, a tour called Wake Up Madagascar. It's perhaps a bit misnamed. Many Malagasy people know what's going on there. It's the rest of the world that may be less informed. So to help her spread the word about the island's deforestation, Razia called up some of her Malagasy musician friends. The family name is Jojobi. I am a singer from Madagascar. Jojobi is one of the most popular musicians on the island. He performs a style of dance music called Salegi. Salegi can rock out or it can settle into a more mellow groove. Either way, it is Malagasy music born in the country, not the city. So the musicians who make Salegi music, says Jajobi, are close to the land. Most good Salegi music players, you know, they stayed in the country. And every day when they wake up, they see trees, birds, and in their lyrics... They talk about uh, nature. Jajobi himself has seen firsthand the destruction to the forests in his home in northeast Madagascar. It's as Razia Said explained, trees cut down or burned, the ground left bare. 
The damage to the forests is evident, says Zhao Jobi, but it's the people, ultimately, who will pay the biggest price. When the land is poor, when what you plant doesn't grow, uh, you know, we will starve. Yeah, we will starve. The Wake Up Madagascar tour has 10 dates across North America. The great music and its message begin tomorrow in Minneapolis. For The World, I'm Marco Werman. At theworld.org, you can find concert dates for the Wake Up Madagascar tour and much more. From the Nanabil Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, the Freeman Foundation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI, Public Radio International.